This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome. My name is Jane and tonight is the last of our 2015 summer series. Next week we'll have Viv back in the studio and again this show will be collectively ramping up the fight for significant climate action. When I say collectively, of course, I mean Viv, myself and you. As you know, the Paris targets are just the beginning. There are yet multiple struggles on multiple fronts required if the Earth is to sustain our kind or indeed any kind in any recognisable form into the future. Tonight we are presenting a woman who saw that writing on the wall and the enormity of the task and decided, like so many others we have had on the show, decided to do something about it. Her name is Margaret Klein-Salomon. She authors the blog theclimatepsychologist.com and is co-founder and director of Climate Mobilisation, a volunteer organisation that states its mission to be no less than to protect civilization and the natural world from catastrophic climate disruption. Here's Margaret Klein-Salomon talking to Radio EcoShock host Alex Smith. She's an American clinical psychologist and host of theclimatepsychologist.com. Now Margaret Klein-Salomon is calling the United States to an emergency mobilization to stave off a disastrous shift in our climate Margaret, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get to climate mobilization, how did you come to combine psychology and climate action? I've been in a PhD program for the past five years. I earned my PhD in August of last year. And during my graduate studies, living in New York City through Hurricane Sandy, among other changes in the climate, uh, and reading the news, I uh, became more and more alarmed about climate change, and I started to write a little bit, started to write a little bit about the psychology of climate change, publish a little kind of online writing, and I thought I would start a blog. And in discussing my planned blog with friends and kind of consulting, a friend said to me, don't start a blog. Discourse isn't enough. Think, what could you do? What could we do together that could actually solve this problem? And that challenge really changed my life and set me on a course of trying to strategize through studying social movements, the psychology of denial, 
climate change itself is a phenomenon, World War II history. And I did start a blog, The Climate Psychologist, but that blog was very focused on sharing my ideas for strategy and seeking collaboration and collaborators. And that was successful and kind of with a growing and shifting group of allies and collaborators, uh, particularly Ezra Silk, uh, but there's many other important contributors. We developed this strategy, uh, organization strategy. It's, it's kind of like a, I call it a startup, social movement startup, the climate mobilization uh, and the, the pledge to mobilize. All right. So let's get to this essential idea of the climate mobilization. Do you want to give us a, an opening picture of what you're doing there? Sure. The climate mobilization advocates, we recognize that climate change is a global emergency that threatens to cause the collapse of civilization within this century. That is really our starting place. What do you do in a global emergency? And what we're advocating is basically to look to, look to history, the World War II home front mobilization in the United States is a time in our history where we successfully met a huge global emergency, which was the uh, Axis powers' imperial ambitions in, in form of World War II, where we, we transformed every sector of our society and economy in order to rapidly meet this challenge. And the breadth of involvement during World War II was just tremendous. It was everyone from soldiers to businesses and uh, housewives who went to factories for the first time ever to work in work in a new industry, uh, and as well as changes at home, such as during the American World War II mobilization, 40% of produce was grown at home in victory gardens, and business uh, and industry uh, completely transformed. Universities transformed in order to do war-related research. Businesses were producing armaments and war material. So the climate mobilization <laughs> looks at this history and says this is, I mean, it's a different challenge this time, but it is an example of how we as a, as a country and internationally deal with an acute crisis, an acute existential crisis. And what's interesting about the idea of a climate mobilization is that it's actually very well known and frequently used by climate leaders, uh, writers, thinkers. They use this as a metaphor, right? We need to mobilize like we did during World War II. That's, I mean, that's something that people as mainstream as uh, Hillary Clinton has talked about that analogy. Uh, the executive directors from a long list of environmental organizations signed a letter to uh, in 2008 to Barack Obama and Hu Jintao calling for a war of a world I forget the exact phrasing but it was like a war like mobilization it was uh, drawn from Lester Brown Lester Brown's one of the biggest advocates of a world war 2 scale and kind of style mobilization. So there's this idea, there's this historical example of how we can successfully deal with an acute crisis, and there's really this broad base of support within the environmental and political community for this idea. And yet, who's advocating for it? What environment, not, not just advocating, but 
actually pushing to realization. So that is what the climate mobilization is doing. We are we are advocating for this concept that is really in many ways, I would say, a hidden consensus that we need a World War II scale mobilization. And the way that we are realizing that concept, our, our goal is to commence this mobilization, this climate mobilization, is through the tool of the pledge to mobilize. And the pledge to mobilize is a one-page document that any American and recently any international person, we made an international version of the pledge, can sign. The pledge contains a political platform that has five political demands in which the signer, the signer recognizes that climate change threatens civilization, and they endorse this uh, five-point platform calling for a World War II scale mobilization that reduces, for the United States, uh, U.S. emissions to net zero by 2025, through a complete transformation of the energy and agricultural sectors, uh, creates full employment in, in in the United States and makes our top foreign policy priority to reach global net zero at emergency speed and then to continue removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere until a safe climate is restored. So when you sign, you endorse that platform, but you also make three uh, personal and political commitments that is... I will vote for candidates who have signed the pledge over those who have not. That's any type of political candidate, local, state, national. I will support candidates who have signed the pledge with time, money, or both. And perhaps most importantly, I will spread the truth of climate change and the the pledge itself to others. So in that way, it becomes like a missionary uh, activity in which you are agreeing when you sign this pledge to go go talk to people. I mean, so you can start with your friends and family. It's a way. It's a way to break climate silence. So it's a way to structure conversations, initiate and structure conversations about the climate crisis, and to provide kind of a a bridge between local, I mean, hyper local, national and international action on climate, so that you can recruit you know the people in your book group or professional association or church to the pledge to mobilize so through through your closest relationships you can have an impact on national and international climate policy I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on what's that frequency again dear 855 I told you Helen 855 and what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap so well done Help Freesia support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shore. Subscribe to 3CR and help. Help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Wow, we've got a lot to talk about, and I'd love to live so long to see all that, but in fact, it happened really, really rapidly. In a couple of years, the United States turned around, and one of the big changes was when the president told the auto industry they wouldn't be making any more cars. 
I'd love to see that happen. Do you think it could happen? I think that that it is hard to overestimate the psychological shift that happened in this country uh, after Pearl Harbor and when when we went through, we entered the war. And and this is this is really an expectable pattern of of human psychology. We you know we we get kind of surprised about the phenomenon of denial, but we shouldn't. We should expect it. So that in the United States, with this mounting crisis and people realizing how dangerous this was, how much uh, and how much it was going to impact them, right? Denial is about trying to preserve the, the status quo, right? Uh, no, things are fine. They're not going to, I'm not going to have to make major changes. So in World War II or before World War II in the United States, isolationism was very, very popular because, you know, only a few decades before, we had been in World War One, you know, very devastating war that made the country say, you know, never, never again. We want to avoid uh, European entanglements at all costs. So that mood was really prevalent, and and with it, a feeling of, of course, I should be able to drive a car. You know, of course, I should live my life for my own pleasure and satisfaction, and you know, my family. But when the United States did come under attack. And Congress nearly unanimously declared war. The shift, I mean, it's just isolationism dried up. And there was this sense that you can, that is still fairly, you can see it in movies and books and how, how we remember that time. But there is this sense of duty before self and uh, a shared effort. So could we ban the production of new automobiles? Yeah, I do. I do think that that is an achievable goal. But we first need to accomplish that mentality of realizing we cannot be just individuals here. As they they say on the TV show Lost, he says, live together, die alone. Right. That if we if each of us keeps going on pursuing our own personal goals, which, you know, could very well include having a new car, then we will face collapse and just catastrophe. But if we decide to come together to pursue the common goal that will allow for survival and subjugate many of our own individual needs, such as the desire to drive a new car, then yes, I do think it could be achieved. And another way to put it is we must achieve it or we will experience a collapse. Now, as you know, there are a huge number of people who distrust any government action does climate mobilization have to come from the federal government? Yes, I I do not see an alternative to the federal government. There's simply the scale of changes that must be undertaken rapidly. I, it simply could not be coordinated and executed by anyone else. This does not mean to say that the federal government would be the only player in the climate mobilization. Very much to the contrary, every sector would be a player. Businesses, universities, civil society, individuals, everyone. But it has to be planned, coordinated, funded by the federal government. So, speaking of Congress, tell us about the bill you want to see passed. A good start would be a declaration of emergency or maybe an actual declaration of war on climate change, but a declaration of emergency, let's say, 
but it's really, really so much more than one bill. It's, it would be hundreds of programs. We, we identified six themes that a climate mobilization policy would include, which are phase out of the fossil fuel infrastructure, right? Just a scheduled decommissioning of fossil fuel, all operations, a renewable energy production miracle, right? So this would be legislation for making contracts with both existing renewable energy companies and in the vein of World War II with companies that don't make renewable energy today but could be transformed into renewable energy companies. And a national conservation project, which would include policies about, I mean, both individual use of energy and also things like public transportation on local level, on regional level, you know, investment in zero carbon infrastructure, transportation infrastructure. We need to secure the food and water supply. That primarily means a transition from industrial agriculture to small-scale local uh, agroecology, as well as, you know, medium and large-scale agroecology. But we need to, I mean, localizing the food supply just gives us so many benefits from zero or very low-carbon supply line, if it's local, to, um, you know, the ability to sequester carbon through compost and agroecology practices to, I mean, perhaps most importantly, very important, protection against food shocks and that we know are coming. That was, I think, four points. Then there's mobilize the world, which is to make climate change, just to, to restructure our foreign policy around climate change, the way that we restructured our foreign policy during World War II uh, around the war, and to have close relationships with our allies who are engaged in the same mobilization as us and do things like technology transfer, uh, you know, the Lend-Lease Act of, uh, or, yeah, Lend-Lease during World War II or before we entered, uh, supplied huge amounts of war material to England, and we also supplied the Soviet Union. So we should be similarly helping our allies around the world mobilize themselves and get to net zero emissions as rapidly as possible. And, oh, and then the other theme is uh, all hands on deck, which is to underscore the point that everyone participates in this mobilization and that it's partially through full employment, which was reached during World War II and should be reached during the climate mobilization through a job guarantee that any American who wants to should be part of this effort and kind of the equivalent of the military, I mean, enlisting, right? You can enlist in this climate mobilization, but you'll be doing things like planting trees or uh, insulating homes or working on rail infrastructure. <laughs> I, I suppose that answers your question <laughs> about legislation. It's, it's really much more of a uh, very multi-platform Kind of an omnibus bill for the climate. You're listening to 3CR Radio. When the last hour of your day rolls in. And you tune into 3CR from December 21 to January 17 for summer programming for a great selection of community radio treats and an eclectic range of summer specials. You'll hear highlights from 3CR's Unique Beyond the Bars 2015, documentaries and current affairs, historical reflections on HIV campaigning, and one-off specials like the David Bowie fan retrospective. 
language programs such as the Voice of Voice Papua, Focus in Palestine, and Summer of Greek Resistance will run throughout the season. And don't forget music specials, The Reggae Groove, The Raven's Lair, Music is My Radar, Weird Girls, Wicked Women, and Gaelic Music on New Year's Eve. Visit 3cr.org.au slash summer specials for a full schedule. There's still plenty of reasons to stay tuned to 3CR over summer. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest psychologist Margaret Klein-Salmon. We are talking about the need for a mass mobilization to fight off crippling climate change. Well, Margaret, the Republican majority in the U.S. Congress is filled with politicians who deny climate change is real or that humans are causing it. That's kind of a stumbling block, isn't it? Uh, yes and no. I mean, yes in rather the obvious ways, but no in the sense that I do think we as a movement, and especially in the media, but uh, the movement itself too, spends way too much time trying to argue that climate change is real and that uh, climate change denial is wrong. I think that debate is just a red herring, and we should just move on. We know it's real. It's showing itself more and more every day. So I, I think we need to shift the discourse to, for political candidates, do you have the ability and the strength of character to protect our country and the world from collapse or not? that that is really the bright line in terms of evaluating whether a candidate is climate-friendly, whether they understand that this is an acute crisis that requires an emergency response, versus this quite bizarre question, do they, do they believe that it's actually, you know, scientifically occurring, which is, of course, a completely answered question. But on a personal level, we all need a little denial to get by. I mean, if I want to fill up my car one more time or pay that electric bill from coal-powered juice, we need to be able to turn off our knowledge of climate change almost. What tools can psychology offer to help us overcome this in order to keep functioning in a fossil-powered world? Psychology, I mean, my field is psychoanalytic psychology, particularly, and that is a field that is focused on helping people accept conflict within themselves to become conscious of, of the fact that, you know, you might both love someone and uh, hate them too at different times, that, that both feelings can coexist or that you feel at the same time uh, proud and ashamed. We do live in a fossil fuel powered world that is almost entirely inescapable on an individual level, to, which is exactly why we need a climate mobilization, because that is the only way we can transition our energy system rapidly. So because of that, when people come to learn about the climate crisis, especially perhaps Americans, but, uh, but I think anyone, but we feel guilty uh, about our energy use and our, you know, personal pollution. And, and that has also really been a lot of the messaging of uh, the environmental movement and the climate movement has been a lot about reduce your carbon footprint. So basically, I want to tell people, don't completely forget about it. It's good to be aware that we live in a fossil fuel powered society and to be mindful about our emissions. But I think that is absolutely the wrong place of focus, whether intellectual, emotional, or for action, 
people, I think there's really been, yeah, that I think if we, if we took the energy that people have put into reducing their personal carbon footprint and tried to transfer that into the political realm, that that would be a much more effective thing. So, I mean, I can say for me personally, you know, I'm aware when basically all the time I'm using some kind of fossil fuel energy, such as, you know, this phone call right now is, uh, you know, I have to plug in my phone and it will charge through. But it's just it's just not a focus. I mean, yeah, the changes we need are so great. So to I guess to come to some sort of self-acceptance that, yes, you do add greenhouse gases to this world by existing and by functioning, but uh, to to devote yourself to say, but my the the greenhouse gas emissions that I inevitably cause will be they will be in the service of creating a political mobilization on the scale that we need, rather than focusing on this very micro issue of yeah my personal emissions. I get you entirely now. As a psychologist, can you tell us some of the ways that our minds work to protect us from knowing how serious or awful the climate threat really is? Oh, gosh. This is really kind of an incredible <laughs> an incredible thing. I mean, as I, as I said earlier, you've got to come from the perspective of expecting the mind to do anything and everything to protect you from this knowledge. Don't, don't say... Oh, that's weird. You know, people's minds don't work perfectly as information processors. Uh, no, we, we, that was never how they worked. That's a computer. Yeah, we don't want to know. But I mean, because on the most basic level, because it hurts to know. It's aversive. So we put it out of awareness. And we do that in so many ways. Denial, obviously. That, like when you, I mean, when you just say, no, it's not happening. I don't agree. But I think just as common, perhaps more important than the phenomenon of denial, is dissociation, the defense of dissociation, which exists on a spectrum. Uh, on the most extreme dissociation would be something like uh, having an out-of-body experience or uh, multiple personalities in which one personality doesn't even know what the other personality did. That's like extreme dissociation, but we all dissociate. The less extreme form is like zoning out, kind of let let your mind go. Dissociation is the lack of integration, the lack of normal integration between um, thoughts and feelings and actions. So, you know, it, let, let's say you're in a class or something, and rather than kind of listening and participating normally, you zone out and and then maybe you get in trouble. With climate change, yeah, I mean, there's so much dissociation of emotion that goes on that people people understand it intellectually, and they'll say things like, oh, yeah, I know, the situation is very, very grave, and yet do nothing, like like they, this doesn't change their actions or, or seemingly their emotions. They talk about it in kind of a, a frank or, like, flat voice, and I, in, in this kind of conversation, I'll often say to someone, you know, you know you're talking about the deaths of billions of people, right? Because there just seems to be missing this kind of idea. I mean, David Roberts <laughs> recently wrote a kind of controversial piece about the, the awful truth of climate change. And I would, I would say that there was definitely this kind of emotional numbing dissociation going on. Um, another, another psychological defense 
that's worth mentioning is willful ignorance, which is when, when you know enough to know that you don't want to know anymore. That is a, a way that people protect themselves. It's a, it's a, a defense that I engaged in for several years before I started to get to overcome it. And it would look like I would open up an article about climate change from a, you know, the Atlantic or something, uh, read the first couple sentences, maybe the first paragraph, and then just exit out. <laughs> Say, nope, I cannot, I cannot take this. This is too painful. I don't want to know. So yeah, willful ignorance I think is is pretty rampant also, and that that's the kind of people that says, oh yeah, climate change, yeah, that's that's real, that's a problem. But yeah, but I don't, but don't ask me. I'm not an expert, right? I haven't I haven't read anything about it, and they kind of studiously avoid reading about it because it would be it would be difficult on so many levels. Down city streets, I would roam. I had no bed, I had no home. Crawl out of bushes early morn. Use newspapers to keep me warm. Then I'd have to score a drink Start me up, help me to think Down city streets I would roll Use my fingers as it In those days when I was young Drinking and fighting was no fun It was daily living for me I had no choice, it was meant to Down city streets, I would roam. I had no bed, I had no home. There was nothing that I owned. Use my fingers as it goes. Now I'm a man. I'm not alone I am married I have children of my own Now I have something I call my own These are my children And this is my home I look around and understand how street kids feel when they're put down. Down city streets, I would roam. I had no bed, I had no home. 
If you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active. And together, we can make this world a more ethical place to live. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest psychologist, Margaret Klein-Salomon. It, you know, you've talked about the emotions, Margaret. If we really tune into what humans are doing to this planet and other species, we may feel strong emotions like grief or anger. Do you advise people to let those emotions happen or to calm themselves in various ways? I am definitely in favor of experiencing emotions. The question is how to contain that, how to structure that in a way that it's not disruptive or overwhelming. But, yeah, absolutely. If people want to cry about climate change, you should cry. Really, if you haven't cried about climate change, maybe you don't quite understand. Or, more likely, maybe you're dissociating. So, uh, get anger, yes, absolutely. You want to make sure that there's an appropriate time and place for that kind of experience and expression. You know, you don't want to like start crying about climate change in an important meeting, for example, or to, you know, become furious about climate change, uh, perhaps in front of your young children. You know, you want to be thoughtful about it. But, yeah, I mean, just in general and in this instance, constricting emotions and holding them in causes psychological problems, <laughs> whereas experiencing them, letting them out, talking about them creates uh, new planes of psychological freedom and uh, agency. One of the kind of smaller projects that I do is uh, run a Facebook group, or really I kind of started it, and it's mainly run by other people now, but called Climate Change It's Personal, in which it's really just a forum for the, kind of the other side of climate discussion, meaning climate discussion on the Internet and generally I think is very much about, you know, numbers, scientific studies, policy targets, uh, economic analyses. I mean, it's a very objective scientific professional um, discourses. And this is a, a place on Facebook where people say things like, 
hey, are there other parents out there? How do you cope with uh, what you know? And people talk about that or just anything, anything about you as a person uh, living in this time. What is it? What is it like? And you know, the the least we can do is be there for each other, so that you don't have to experience the climate crisis alone. So we recently had the Norwegian eco-psychologist Per Espen Stokneys on the show. He says we have to stop frightening people with climate forecasts, which may only paralyze them into inaction. What are your thoughts on that? So I want to read more of his work and hear, hear more about what he has to say and kind of what is the context. But, but basically, I disagree in that absolutely people can become overwhelmed by climate change. That is definitely true, and it is something that should be avoided. But I think that much better than not making them afraid, uh, which will inevitably involve distorting the truth, because climate change is very frightening if, if presented truthfully, but rather channel the emotions, the fear, the grief, the anger, into the, the desperation, into a constructive solution that everyone can be a part of. My perhaps greatest hope or is, is that the pledge to mobilize solves the problem that he is talking about. Right. That when you then when people understand how huge the problem is, that they become paralyzed. Well, not if there's a huge solution on the table that they can be a part of. It doesn't have to be paralyzing them. It can be empowering. And that is what that is what we need, because we need people to respond with urgency. We need people to to respond realistically, which is if we don't solve this, all is lost. And if people don't understand that. Don't don't take that in. I don't see how we can possibly expect activism to work. We we need people to, to give of themselves at that level. I, I feel pretty strongly about um, climate truth. I wrote, there's an essay of mine, a uh, recent essay of mine called The Transformative Power of Climate Truth. It was published on Common Dreams and is currently uh, the top story on climate Climate Code Red. It's also on my blog, The Climate Psychologist. And in that article, I make a comprehensive argument for frank honesty about the climate crisis. Meaning, if you're, I think if you're not talking about the fact that climate change will cause the collapse of civilization if we don't take drastic action, I think basically you're bullshit people. And in my use of the word bullshit, I'm quoting the philosopher. Henry, last name escaping me at the moment, I quote him in my article, from Princeton, whose book on bull says the whole spectrum of, like, messaging or focus grouping that says, and, you know, we've gotten so into this in the United States for politics, that says, don't communicate the truth. Uh, communicate, you know, some kind of message that will kind of work for people or will manipulate them in some way. So that is a method of communication that is qualitatively different from honesty. And I, I think the the idea that you can kind of through through phrases like, you know, clean energy future or green jobs or this kind of positive outlook, uh, you can kind of trick people into climate activism. I think it's uh, really 
fundamentally flawed, and that in that we lose the enormous transformative power of climate truth, which is if we are honest and say climate change threatens the collapse of civilization, it's on us. Uh, and and you know obviously we've this is evidence of widespread institutional failure that we've gotten this far down the, we've warmed the planet this much we've emitted this much co2 our institutions are not working for us it has to come from us from the people living in this fateful hour and that truth i i believe and i mean i've seen it i've seen it in myself and i've seen it in, in many others too that truth can really get someone to say this is what i want to do and and when i see people when I see people doing things like, you know, changing jobs so they'll have more time for climate activism or kind of in, in, in similar ways, rearranging their lives in order to, to put time into the climate mobilization, that is like, okay, they got it. <laughs> they are uh, allowing, they're taking in this fact of our uh, situation and allowing themselves to be changed by it. And those those people, I mean, those transformations, those transformed people, are the fuel for the the kind of massive social movement that we need. Yeah, I I just cannot imagine how we could solve climate change without frank honesty paired with solutions that people can engage in. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with this radio program, Radio EcoShock. It's to say the awful truth, but then to get past that and, and look at what can we do. And this is the hour. The The people who are alive now are either going to answer this threat or not, and, and we'll see. Well, if you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, I sure know where you are. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. You're listening to the host of Radio EcoShock, Alex Smith, in conversation with Margaret Klein Salomon, a psychologist who has started a website, if not a movement, for uh, climate mobilization. You got some inspiration from the World War II model from the book No Ordinary Time by Doris Kearns. You said that gave you hope. Why? Oh, it was the, it was the first real history I had read of what we did, what, what the United States did during World War II, and what we did, especially on the home front. And it's just incredible. It's, a, it's an absolutely incredible story. You know, that after, after World War I, the United States, as I was saying earlier, was in an isolationist mood, and we really decommissioned our military production. We, we said that people were very angry at war, war profiteers. They said, no, no, we do not want to have a big, expensive army. And so, however, Germany, after World War I, just built its, built its war production from the ground up and focused on war production intensely. And the United States was still 
mired in the debates about whether <laughs> whether tanks or cavalry was more effective for ground warfare. And there was a lot of <laughs> just a lot of emphasis on horses in our army in the thirties that we were so far behind. But we turned around. We collectively decided after proper that this had to be done. Seeing the transformation on every level, seeing the level of civic participation and things like the government would call for a, a rubber drive and they would collect huge amounts of materials this way through through just voluntary voluntary craft drives. So so yeah, it just it just really gave me a mental picture of what we can accomplish when when the going gets tough. Understanding the World War II mobilization was really the only thing that I've read that gave me hope about climate change. I kind of worry, though, that a return to military imagery has its drawbacks. Militarism is part and parcel of climate change, and it's also something that might happen when droughts, famines, or repeated extreme weather strike. Is this really the best example we have? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it is, but, of course, it's not a perfect example. But the climate mobilization is going to be better than the World War II mobilization because we don't have to kill anyone, right? It's not about war. It's about large-scale killing. The climate mobilization is actually quite the opposite. We, we are fighting forces of destruction that threaten billions of lives uh, as opposed to so, – so, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a rescue operation. In that way, it's better. I would say the other basic difference – is that war is much easier, right? It's much easier psychologically. It's, it's easier to sell war, right? We're evolutionarily, we're very primed to uh, being, a, if we're aggressed upon, we want to defend ourselves. This is a kind of a, yeah, basic human tendency. So people, people have talked about if it was, if the North Koreans or who, whatever enemy was destroying our climate, uh, intentionally, not that there's not that there's no ill intent, because uh, surely there's there's bad actors such as I mean fossil fuel companies uh, and uh, climate denial kind of misinformation think tanks come to mind. But those bad actors are not actually causing the problem; they are delaying response to the problem. But but what's causing the problem is our entire economy and our entire global system right now. So there's no one that we can point to and say, you know, we're going to we're going to get you. The climate mobilization is going to take, you know, in a way like a higher level of consciousness, a higher level of human functioning to say we're going to mobilize ourselves to save ourselves, but without this kind of easy rallying cry of us versus them. How do you see, Margaret, this call for climate change going international to countries, say, like India, who never experienced the big shift in World War II, or maybe Scandinavia, where they didn't mobilize against Hitler? I guess what I'm asking is, is this really an American movement when we need a global response? Uh, yes. So very recently, we did introduce an international version of the pledge to mobilize. And as you say, we had to take out the World War II metaphor because it does not apply everywhere. We changed the target of getting to net zero to 2030 
to give especially developing nations a little bit more time. But it is, so rather than a World War II scale mobilization, it's an emergency mobilization. And, and rather than, you know, conduct it in accordance with the U.S. Constitution, it's conducted in accordance with the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. So it is very recent, but we have people taking the pledge to mobilize now from all over the world. And it's something we really need to scale up and, you know, just kind of build out our website to make it to have a distinct international section. But the strategy of the pledge to mobilize, of the international pledge to mobilize, really is applicable in any country with elections. You can say, I'm going to support candidates who are going to protect civilization. (laughs) That's it. Right. The pro-civilization party. It should be every party, but it isn't right now. So these are very early days for the call for climate mobilization. What is happening now, and what do you hope for in the coming year or two? Nader signed the pledge over the weekend. That's our first signer who really has a national profile. And uh, in the short term, we're having a National Climate Mobilization Day, our first uh, day of action, on June 14th, Sunday, June 14th. That is being anchored by our San Diego contingent, which is really trailblazing as far as public organizing goes. They had a march. They had a rally where they posted the pledge on the federal building. And with a nice turnout, I mean, 350 people showed up in San Diego, but they're following that up with uh, former Congressman Jim Bates uh, signed the pledge to mobilize, and he will be actually recreating Paul Revere's ride in the streets of San Diego, warning that climate crisis is coming and we must mobilize. So he'll be doing that. And uh, then his end point will be a a kind of large gathering and, you know, rally or party or whatever it's going to be at like midnight. So they were planning that and we figured let's really try and amp this up. Let's let's call on mobilizers uh, all over the country to, to do something in public, something that can be, you know, hold a rally if you can if you've got the ability to do that, or it can be as small as, you know, five people take the pledge and and post it somewhere public, or, you know, we're having people tabling at uh, farmer's markets, you know, just a group of people getting out there and representing the climate mobilization. Yeah, that is, that is, it's going to be another first, just a kind of coordinated day to raise our profile and get our message out there. So speaking in a more long-term way, I mean, our, our timeline is really about the 2016 elections. I mean, our, our strategy isn't entirely beholden to the elections because we can pressure sitting elected officials to sign the pledge. However, the 2016 election is a huge opportunity in which we will elect a new president and much of a new Congress. And, you know, we have these incredibly long, drawn-out primaries in the United States, and that with a huge amount of media coverage. And this is really our opportunity to get the fact that climate change threatens civilization, and we need an emergency World War II-scale mobilization to respond to get to carbon zero absolutely as quickly as possible. I mean, it needs to be our absolute top priority. That This is our chance to get this message into the public consciousness and to elect candidates and to and to really pressure put pressure on candidates. Are you going to fight for us or not? 
it may take some time, in my opinion, to really swing people. And we don't know what the Pearl Harbor moment will be that causes a, a demand for action. But I, I think it's possible, no matter who's elected, that there could be a wave of such public demand that we could pull this off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, our strongest and, you know, really very strong asset is the truth. And it is a truth that is making itself more and more clear, more and more obvious, and more and more um, in our faces. I mean, who, who can look around their community and say that climate change isn't happening? I mean, it's really tangible at this point. I mean, the mood is just shifting all the time. I mean, from when I when I started getting involved in this to now, uh, is something my parents have commented about, like just how what initially sounded like you know kind of a wild idea now seems like oh yeah right. I mean, so the uh, public opinion is shifting very quickly. I mean, Pope Francis is going to I think be huge in that, and the pledge to mobilize is there to provide a structured, comprehensive vision for what we need to do and that we did it before. Well, we've been having a great talk. We're going to have to wrap it up. Where do people go to find the Climate Pledge and become mobilization activists? So go to theclimatemobilization.org. That is our website. Or to go directly to the pledge page, you can go to theclimatemobilization.org slash sign underscore the underscore pledge. But you can probably find it from our main website. Yes, and I'll put links to all that on my show blog at ecoshock.info as well. We have been speaking with clinical psychologist Margaret Salomon Klein, and you can find her blog at theclimatepsychologist.com. Margaret, thank you so much for talking with us on Radio Ecoshock. Thanks for having me. That's the show for this week. We'll put up the podcast on both the 3cr.org.au and bze.org.au websites, along with links to both the Radio Shock website, which if you haven't looked that up yet, it is well worthwhile looking up. Podcasts of Alex's show can be downloaded from this site, including the one you've listened to tonight. And I'll also put up links to uh, Margaret Klein Salomon's website, Climate Mobilisation. Many thanks to the team, Miwa, Roger, Teddy, Jody, Glenn and Viv. See you next week, same time and channel for our launch into 2016 programming. See ya. Nothing beats the feeling Riding with your mates Two wheels singing beneath you Warm wind in your face Flying through the cropland Time standing still Small towns fade behind us Heading for the hill And we'd ride Rolling through the bends Yelling, laughing and singing Never thinking it would end I wish we were out there again 
Lean hard through the corner Chasing that perfect line Kick back on the summit Drink in that mountain air Roll and race back down the mountain Great days on the tear And we'd ride out the highway Rolling through the bends Yelling, laughing and singing Never thinking that it would end I wish we were out there Lost out on the road I like to imagine They're still riding on Riding with the fallen Smiling in the sun Gliding through the twilight On their endless run And we'd ride Out the highway Rolling through the bends Yelling, laughing, singing Never thinking It would end Ride out the highway Wish we were 